tell you what you're listening to welcome to father simon says on relevant radio with father richard simon i'm here to answer your questions have a question give us a call 1-888-914-9149 that's any question you may have about the lord the faith and the church that's 1-888-914-9149 this is in fact a radio show called father simon says on relevant radio I just, I just got myself derailed here. This is interesting. I got a letter from Enrique, which I'll have to deal with, about David's sons being priests. My goodness, I'm if I'm confused starting the show, boy, are you going to be? <laughs> oh, it's what I do. Oh dear, this is interesting. You know, I always say that the quality of relevant radio listeners is pretty smart. I wish this show host was as smart. We'll work on this. But I think we really need to pray that I don't say anything too stupid today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful. Enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him. We humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And again, we pray for peace, Lord, our Lady, Queen of Peace. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let, let's go to the big book on the coffee table. And I'm just going to say what I was going to say. And then we'll get into it when I figure out what that really means. That, that, that That's going to take some work. Uh, but for the past two days, we have been talking about Paul and Timothy and Titus and uh, um, their work. But now we're back to the story. And I want to share what I consider one of my most harebrained theories about about the scriptures today. Um, <laughs> the voice measures of which there are many. But this is this is, you know, this is kind of interesting. Um, David, we, when we last visited David, he had been made uh, king over Israel and, and Judah. In other words, he was the king of Judah because he was a, 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 a Judean. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so, uh, which is what the word Jew comes from. Yehud means Judah and Yehudim means the Judahites and that comes to be Jews. So, uh, the, the, they're, I'm not explaining anything you don't know already. However, Israel, when you talk about Israel, generally you are talking about all 12 of the tribes, or if it's Israel and Judah, you're talking about the northern tribes, the so-called 10 northern tribes. But, but we don't really have time to go into the mathematics of it because they're actually nine and two or eight and two halves. It's very confusing. But um, the the... Those tribes are also called Ephraim um, and Samaria. Uh, they're the north. And they shared a language, a religion, um, 
and uh, were often at loggerheads politically with each other. Now, we'll see as the readings go on how that division happened. But David is thought to be king. Saul was king. David is king in these readings. Solomon will be king of all the entire Israelite nation. Now, there's some revisionist um, archaeologists who say, nah, there never was a United Kingdom, but there was. I, I have no doubt that this is this is good history. So, uh, all right. Well, here we hear David wants to build a temple. The temple had been at Shiloh, the, the cult center, and we don't know from archaeology if there was an actual temple there or simply the Ark of the Covenant in its tent rested there. But I suspect there was a building and there's just nothing of it left. So that's ongoing archaeology, Shiloh. You recall the story that David, or rather the Ark, had been taken into battle uh, by the sons of Eli, uh, Phineas and Hophni. And, uh, well, actually, the people had taken the ark in as kind of a talisman, and they'd lost it to the Philistines. And the Philistines were being cursed because they had taken the ark. And so they put the ark on an ox cart and let it wander toward uh, Israel. And if it went in the direction of Israel, they knew that, well, that was their problem. So the ark wandered toward Israel, and it was kept in a number of places over that time. Now... David heard about the ark, and when he had captured the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, he decided to make it his capital. It was right on the border of, of Judah and the, the territory of the tribe of Judah and the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. It was right, it was closer to Judah. Shiloh was squarely in the middle of the, of the northern tribes, so like Washington, D.C., which was right on the border between Maryland and Virginia. It was in neither state. Jerusalem, uh, the city of Jebus, was in, not in the territory of, of, of the Israelites nor in the territory of the Judahites. So David decides to make his capital. It's eminently fortifiable, great place for a capital, had a good water source. And he decides to bring the Ark of God up to... Uh, 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 Jerusalem. And so they they get the Ark of the Covenant and they begin to bring it up. And one of the soldiers uh, uh, begins to see that it is falling off. This is one of the most difficult passages to explain in the scriptures. The Ark of the Covenant uh, um, is being brought back and lo and behold, uh, there is a uh, uh, um, uh, um, a soldier, I, I'm looking for the name of the soldier, uh, Uzzah. Uzzah, on the way to Zion, Uzzah, one of the drivers of the cart that carried the ark, put out his hand to steady the ark, and he was struck dead by God for touching it. Now, the Philistines had touched, God hadn't struck them dead, but only Levites, people from the priestly tribe of Levi, uh, which included the Kohanim, the, the, the sacrificing priests, um, they were the only ones who were supposed to touch it. Well, uh, you don't hear about about uh, the Philistines dropping dead when they touch it. What's going on here? Why would God do this? Uzzah, this soldier, this employee of David, uh, as he's trying to move the ark from Kiriath-Jerim uh, um, to Jerusalem, uh, this is a good thing. Why would, God, why would God do this? Because there was an intensely important point in this. 
which seems to be contradicted by the Second Samuel 8.18, which I'm going to have to figure out. But there was a strict division of, of, of tasks, uh, a separation of powers, as it were. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Kings, uh, increasingly, would come from the tribe of Judah. In the ancient world, kings and priests were the same thing. That they arrogated to themselves semi-divinity. That priests were above the law, or rather kings were above the law. They were, they were divine. They made law. And that wasn't the way it was with God. Uzzah was struck dead, I believe, to tell David to lighten up. Seriously. David, you know, oh, this is wonderful. David uh, um, is, is going to bring the ark to Jerusalem and build a beautiful temple. It's, oh, how wonderful David is. Now, this is my rather strange theory about David. I think he was doing exactly what the Israelites did when they took the ark from Shiloh and lost it. He was using, I, I, I'm, please take this with a grain of salt. I may be totally wrong, but I suspect that David was using the ark or planning to use the ark to um, abet his political position. He was going to put the ark in Jerusalem and in order to pray, to, to perform the functions that uh, needed to happen in a temple, uh, you'd have to come to Jerusalem. He was at the point of using the ark for his political purposes. And God said very powerfully, you want, you want to do that? Watch. How would God do that? That's not nice. No, God took Uzzah to himself, and I'm sure Uzzah is doing fine. But he said to, to David, don't do this. Don't make the mistake that Hophni and Pincus did. Uh, and that Eli did, you do it right. That's my theory. Well, on hearing that, uh, you know, the, 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 they brought the ark to the house of Obed-Edom and uh, it just stayed there for three months. And then David heard that, that uh, God had blessed Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom means the slave of Edom. That's what it means, the servant of Edom. I don't know if that's significant in the story. Um, but the ark was kept at his house and God prospered him. And so David had gotten the message and he brought the ark up to Zion. Uh, and he, he clothed himself in a linen ephod. An ephod was kind of an apron in which were kept, uh, the high priest's ephod, uh, in the pockets of the ephod were kept, um, Urim and Thummim, which were probably some sort of stone or bone that was used for divination, but it's a priestly garment. So he danced before the Lord. And of course, his wife, uh, the daughter of the last King Saul, named Michelle Michal, uh, she mocked him because she was, of course, an aristocrat. <laughs> At least she thought she was. And he said, I will dance before the maidens of Israel all I want uh, to glorify the Lord. So that's the story of how the ark got to the house of of David. And then God says that he's going to prosper the Lord. Nathan the prophet comes in and David says, I want to build a temple and oh, go for it. And then the Lord says to Nathan, to tell him not to go for it. Um, he's a man of blood and I don't want to build the ark. His son will build the ark. He can get everything, or not the ark, the temple. His son will build the temple, get everything together for the temple, but he's not going to build it. 
That's not what I've asked him to do. But as I said yesterday, he, he made something far more lasting than the temple. He laid the foundation for the book of Psalms, uh, which you and I pray every day if we say the liturgy of the hours. All right, let's, let's go quickly to Mark, the fourth chapter, um, and see what we got here. Mark four twenty one to 25 is a lamp brought in to be placed under a bushel basket or under a bed. Is it not to be placed on a lampstand? Now, when, when you hear the translation, a bushel, a bushel basket, when you and I, uh, generic American types, and I suppose most English speakers, when you hear a bushel, you think of sort of this wooden wicker thing. If you put a lamp under it, it would go up in flame, you know, like a, 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 a laundry basket, exactly. Uh, that's not what the word is. The word in Greek is modion. It's a clay pot. And I remember reading a commentator who said that on occasion you might put a, a lamp under a clay pot. I don't know if I think this is true. I, 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 I can't footnote it, but it's interesting, so I'll share it. Uh, take it with two grains of salt. But you might put uh, a light under a, a clay pot. You'd prop the clay pot up so that there was air circulation, but it was to keep the flame uh, out of harm's way so that it didn't burn anything and it didn't get blown out. Um, okay, maybe. Uh, but what about under a bed? You slept on... Uh, the family in a, in a typical home at the time slept on a stone platform. You'd put mattresses and stuff on it at the end of the house. Uh, and uh, under the stone platform, you might have storage areas that were stone, and uh, uh, it would be quite secure. So the commentator I read on that said, you're keeping the lights safe safe from doing harm and safe from being blown out because they didn't have matches and they didn't have pilot lights that sort of thing so this thing would have been the house pilot light and you didn't want it to blow out if you if you lost fire you'd have to go to your neighbors and can i get a light that sort of thing and you'd carry your little oil lamp i don't know if you've ever used an oil lamp it's a smoky little um weak flame that's easily extinguished so you gotta you gotta kind of nurse it uh you trim it so that it it's doesn't go out it's just a lot of it's it's much more difficult to handle even than a candle maybe uh and if that's true the point of what jesus is saying is you don't light a light to keep it safe you light a light to give light to the house however I, jesus might have just been saying something humorous <laughs> in any regard i don't know if that's true but it's an interesting idea so i share it with you telling you to take it with salt but Moving on with the parable, nothing, there is nothing hidden except to be made visible. Nothing is secret except to come to light. If you think that you're doing something in secret, you're wrong. A secret is something that you tell to no one else, not even one person. However, that isn't even true because everything that is secret now is going to be very, very public at the last judgment. Well, what about sins I've confessed? I don't know that they're going to be hidden. They'll be matters of joy. Seriously, serious sins that I've confessed, and even venial sins that I've confessed. When we stand at the last judgment, I'm not going to be embarrassed by my sins. They're going to be causes of joy because they've been forgiven by the Lord and transformed. So, oh gosh, I don't want people to know. Well, then don't do it if you don't want people to know it. Uh, we believe the last judgment we shall know as we are known, and nothing is hidden from God. So um, I, I think that that's to be thought of. 
that we think that somehow there are some things that are private. There is nothing private, nothing private at all. And we need to live our lives. Uh, you know, who was the philosopher? Was it Socrates? Someone offered to build a house for him that no one could see in. He said, on the contrary, I want a house that everyone can see into every part of. You know, that's the house in which we Christians live. And everyone in the world lives. They just don't know it. Now, the next line is an inviolable measure, an inviolable principle of the kingdom. I talked about the idea of bi biblical principles. Uh, that, that, that there are just some biblical principles which are as solid as the law of gravity. The measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. It's a, a, a more precise way of saying what goes around comes around. God is just. And I look, you know, how could God smite the Egyptians and kill the firstborn? Well, if you look at the scriptures, Pharaoh chose his own punishment when he decided to kill the firstborn. I think I have a letter about that, too, here that I'll have to read. Uh, when he decided to kill the firstborn of Israel. Well, as he measured out, so was measured to him. His firstborn would be killed. You see, we think we're asking God for something, and we, we don't know what we're asking sometimes. Uh, the measure with which we measure out, if we are forgiving we are forgiven. If we are grudging, it's begrudged to us. You can't, you, can't, you can't bend this rule. The measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. The generous have generosity. The selfish, well, they're alone. So, biblical principle. So what have we got? We got this, this uh, amazing uh, uh, story of, of David and Saul and Samuel and Nathan and uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and um, it's full of, of, of meaning for us that we can't use God for our own purposes. And I will end uh, this section of the show by reminding you that when you have an encounter with God, you have met someone who cannot be bargained with, who cannot be cajoled, who cannot be fooled, who cannot be conned, who cannot be negotiated with. As I tell you every other day, God has this problem. He thinks he's God. All right, we will come back. We'll open the phones at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We will be back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. This takes me back to my youth, sort of hippie Motown, uh, I may be right, I may be wrong, profoundly said. Well, all right, let's go to letters. I, I have a letter here from, from, uh, from whom? From Albert, uh, about uh, the firstborn of Israel, in uh, which I mentioned earlier. Um, 
the first, or in Exodus four eighteen thirteen, God tells Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son, which we just said. Well, Albert says, how can this be? Jesus was the firstborn. No, he's the only begotten. Uh, he's the firstborn of the Blessed Mother. And in time, Israel is born before Jesus. Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God. And in the great timeless reality of God, yes, Jesus is the firstborn. But in time, Jesus had ancestors. So uh, um, only begotten is different than firstborn. Uh, all of us, even Israel, are children by adoption, whereas Jesus is begotten Son of God. Another question, um, Jesus said, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you, but to those outside it comes in parables. We talked about that yesterday. He's simply quoting the text uh, as true. I don't think he's saying that that's his purpose, and that's why he talks in parables. He he, he tells simple and funny stories to explain things to simple people, but he says to the disciples, now remember, remember, this is not, the word mystery does not mean uh, what we mean by mystery. It means secret. You are given the secrets of the kingdom of God. To the rest, I'm telling them stories so that they can lay hold of this and and um, and, and learn. So I don't think when Jesus quotes, uh, is it Isaiah he's quoting when he says, uh, but hearing they shall not hear, uh, lest they lest they open their ears and be saved. It isn't God's purpose to not save them. It's merely, uh, I think, a reflection of of the fact. Um, I suppose we could pick apart the grammar, but I don't think it's really necessary. All right. Um, oh, by the way, I wanted to mention. I totally forgot to mention about uh, our, our Miracles in Mary series. Let me see. I want to read this. Yeah, let me let me pull this up. But we're studying, you know, last year was the year of St. Joseph, and we're starting this uh, uh, whole new deal about about the Blessed Mother. So, you know, what, where, do, where do you go to get this? Let me pull this up. i got to click on something. Yes, Relevant Radio, Miracles, Mysteries, and Mary. Um that you know, I love the the title for the Blessed Mother, Queen of Angels. The word angel means missionaries, or, or rather messenger. Apostle means missionary. Messenger. That's all the word angel means. It's a and that's what the word means in Hebrew. Malach is a is a is a messenger. And Our Lady is the Queen of Messengers par excellence. That she she brings uh the the, the the news from her her son uh, there's you know everybody's thinks that miracles uh are are to prove faith no miracles are to draw your attention to something god is saying miracles are a variation i think of the prophetic gift and what's important in the miracle you know miracles don't convince anyone you can think your way around any miracle no matter how great it is but miracles have meaning, and, and I think especially when you talk about the Blessed Mother. So Miracles, Mysteries, and Mary, it's going to air, uh, um, or it's, gonna, it's, it's on the website. Uh, you can go to, uh, uh, what is it again, uh, Dear Voice in My Head? I don't hear the... Yes, did, did, did you tell the folks that live? 
I, I don't know. This is not quality radio on my part, but my poor producer, he has we, we, to put up with so can, much from me. So you go, this is live, Father. Miracles, oh, Mysteries, good. and Marys, it's free. So to receive the email series and gain access to the exclusive content, sign up today at relevantradio.com slash Mary, relevantradio.com slash Mary. There you go. Said like a professional. Now I've got one from Kirk um, about uh, explaining first Peter. No, no, this is just Kirk. Uh, Kirk from, from, well, I don't want to rat him out, as it were, but it's Kirk. He occasionally sends me stuff. This is about first Peter 4.16, which is kind of a, it's an interesting verse. Uh, remember that also in first Peter, we read that, that uh, Jesus went and preached to the souls in chains. Let me pull that up. Okay. Um, okay. Click. Smash. Uh, no. First Peter 3.19. We read that Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, in whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, and God waited patiently the days of Noah. While the ark was being built, in the ark a few people, only eight souls were saved through water. And then we read in First Peter uh, four sixteen, we read uh, uh, no, four, First Peter four six. Uh, the, the pagans are surprised when you don't plunge into the same swamp of profligacy and they vilify you, but they will give an account to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though condemned in the flesh. In human esti in estimation, they might live in the spirit, in the estimation of God. This is a fascinating thing to me, that that there in in this in the letter to Saint Peter, first letter of Saint Peter, there are these two allusions to post death uh, uh, evangelism and salvation. That that I really believe that it's it's very biblical that God gives everyone the chance to hear the gospel, that God in his mercy and justice offers the, the, the chance of the gospel to everyone. Now, how that fleshes out, I don't know. But that's how, Kirk, that's how I read it. I hope that that helps and, and isn't confusing. All right, let's see here. Now, I got more stuff here. This is from Frank. All right. Um, can Romans 9.29 be interpreted as saying that if not for Jewish believers in Jesus Christ via the New Covenant, Judaism in any of its forms would be non-existent? I'm having a hard time. Let me pull that up because I, I don't think it, it says that. Um, remember, Judaism, I, I define Judaism as rabbinic Phariseeism, and I, I think that's the proper way to do it. Uh, rabbinic Phariseeism um, is a a way to be an Israelite without the temple because, and it seems to have really begun in Babylon where there wasn't a temple. Um, I, people are always amazed when I remind them that, that you're never going to find the synagogue in the Old Testament. No synagogue mentioned. You can be a perfectly good Jew and never possibly, uh, and never darken the door of a synagogue. It's a domestic religion. So, um, you know that 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 when we talk about uh, 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 Judaism, we're talking about the religion of Israel, and we really believe that we are part of the religion of Israel. Uh, um, so is the tribe of Judah, but 
we would say we've been grafted in. All right. So you're asking me about uh, uh, um, uh, Romans 9.29. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, St. Paul says in the second verse of the chapter, for I, w- I could wish myself cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption, the sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of laws. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all and forever praised. Amen. Uh, It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants. They are all Abram's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring. What the heck is going on here? Has it ever occurred to you that Abraham... Now, I hope I don't get grief for this, but Abraham wasn't a Jew. You couldn't be a Jew. You couldn't be a a member of the covenant with Israel until Sinai. The the tribes of Israel are descended from uh, Jacob. And, And this is, I think, what Paul is pointing out here. There are a lot of people who are are descended from Abraham, and a lot of people descended from Israel. Remember, Jacob is the name given to Israel, or Israel rather is the name given to Jacob, and they are they are his descendants because they're all Abraham's children. Not all are the descendants of Abraham would even be reckoned ethnically as members of of the Jewish people. And people forget that. Now, now, Orthodox Jews say that Abraham was given a gift by the Lord and he kept kosher and obeyed the covenant with Moses before the covenant of Moses had been stricken. I don't see that in Scripture, but, you know, I, I don't want to get into an argument about it. But, but this idea, what Paul is saying is that, that descent from Abraham, descent from Isaac, descent from even from Jacob, doesn't necessarily make you an Israelite. That's what he's saying. So, your question for me is: Can Romans nine twenty nine be interpreted as saying that it is not for Jew if that if not for Jewish believers in Jesus Christ via the new covenant, Judaism in any of its forms would be non-existent? I don't think it's saying that. I think what he's simply saying is that that uh, um, that people are grafted into Israel. Um, this is genetically true, and it was true at the time of Christ. And this kind of, well, I'm better than you are because of my ethnicity. He's saying that's not what this is about. Um, so it is a tough chapter to understand, but he's reminding them in a kind of Talmudic way that not everybody descended from Abraham, not everybody descended from Isaac, and even not everyone descended from Israel, from Jacob, is a Jew. And that would be very pointedly true the Samaritans were not considered part of the covenant, and they said they were. The Samaritans were all descended from Israel, but their descent was not pure. So that's what he's saying. This isn't a matter of physical descent. It's a matter of adoption. I think that's what he's saying. So I hope that helps. Um, you know, when we kind of define things strictly by modern categories, well, we frequently get them wrong. Let's see. Is there anything else I would like to? Now nah, let's let's. Uh, we, we, we've opened the phones at eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. We'll be right back, and we'll have a word of the day and open the phones. 
Ay. Ay, this is going to be... The next few things are going to be amazingly inscrutable, so just be patient. It's time to go to the word of the day. I want to answer a letter from Enrique. Um, uh, um, 2 Samuel 8.18 It states that there's this long catalog about David's victories, and at the end... The 15th verse and following, David reigned over all Israel. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Alihud, Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, this is very important, Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. To be a high priest, you had to be descended from Zadok. We'll refer to that later in some point. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah ben Yehoda, uh, Yehoyada, was over, and David's sons were priests. And of course, I looked that up in Hebrew, and it says exactly that. Now, the the uh, David's uh, the sons of David were priests. And the word is Kohen. Now, I, I shared with you the other day that the word Kohen means one who offers sacrifice. It's a hereditary position. And uh, um, the, uh, the word priest is actually an etymological development of the word presbyter in Greek, meaning elder. So I'm ordained to the sacrifice word of Christ in the order of elder. This distinction is very important, but the word used in the text, Enrique, is Kohen. They were Kohanim. In other words, they were sacrificers. And this would appear to be a complete contradiction of what I just said, that the, the, um, the sons, or rather priests, were from the tribe of Levi, and uh, that is, sacrificer priests were from the tribe of Levi, and uh, the uh, kings were from the tribe of Judah. It took a while to establish this. Uh, we see uh, Solomon doing priestly things, and he was a son of David. But he did not directly offer sacrifice. He provided for the sacrifice. And it was would have been the Levites and the, 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 the sons of Aaron, the Cohens, to, to work out the sacrifice. So I think that you can almost translate the sons of David... Now they'll translate chief ministers, but the word is priests. They were they were kohanim. They were sacrificers. Um, I think that that uh, they were sacrificers in the sense that they provided richly for the sacrifice. We see the the huge sacrifices made at the dedication of the temple under Solomon, who was the son of David. So they were involved, and they seemed to have had a spe special liturgical role. For instance, the king would stand by one of the pillars. Uh, in the uh, uh, at the entrance to the temple, uh, to the central shrine of the temple, but that was within the precinct of priests. Uh, that they they would have been in a part of the temple that was reserved for priests. So a special deference seems to have been given to the family of David, but they were never thought to be those who actually offered the sacrifice. That's as close as I can come to defining it. But I, I think, uh, you know, this is very obscure, but I think 
it's very important for us as Christians to understand, uh, especially in the understanding of Scripture, that we have one high priest, Jesus, and that in different different levels we all participate in the sacrificerhood of Christ. I in the order of elder, you in the order of the baptized, and and the Scripture doesn't contradict itself in this in the New Testament. You know that to say that there's only one great high priest. Well, what do Catholics have all these extra priests for? No, they have presbyters who express the sacrificial dimension of the church, and we do offer true sacrifice. And all of us are meant to be sacrificers. Uh, however, I think that, that this statement in this catalog of David's, David's accomplishments, it's talking about simply how they, they provided for the sacrifice. I don't think it means they actually were the ones who held the knife and cut the throat of the cow. I hope. So that's as good as I can get, David. And that's a great question because, you know, these things were firming up at the time. Uh, uh, we see that, that God was having a hard time telling David, no, you're not a Cohen. You know, you don't get to control the ark and you don't, you don't get to do what the Kohanim do. And he had to express that to his sons. It was, it was a very difficult it took a long time for God to convince Israel to do things like not worship other gods and to not um, uh, and to to divide the functions according to Mosaic law, and so uh, I think that this reference to the sons of David as priests is is reflective of that struggle to uh, to to limit their power. That's my thought. Who knows? Maybe I'm right. All right, let's go to phone calls. Whom do we have on the phone? Oh, Chris from Fall River, Massachusetts. Throw me a softball. It's been a long day. Yeah, I just had a uh, quick question for you, Father. I'm wondering if you can clarify something. Um, whether it be con regular conversations with certain priests or, um, or at confession, uh, they've told me kind of two different things about um, God's nature when it comes to his mercy and discipline. Sometimes I've heard God disciplines you for your own good. Like, for example, he may um, give you, I guess, a health issue that brings you back to the faith. And some people yeah. would say, thank God for the for the health issue. And some supporting verses that I saw were like Hebrews 12, um, Romans 9, 18, and John 5, where he says, sin no more or nothing worse will happen to you. And I went to confession recently, and a priest said, God isn't vindictive, which to me that doesn't seem, that, that doesn't mean he's vindictive if he's disciplined you like a father does. But mm -hmm. he said he doesn't care about broken promises or if you make a human mistake. He just wants you to love unconditionally, and nothing bad can come from God. He's merciful and, you know, infinitely merciful and um hmm. he he, does, he doesn't, I, I, doesn't want you to obsess over perfection i wonder if that priest has read the book of job we receive good from the lord from the hand of the lord shall we also not receive evil the lord gives the lord takes away blessed be the name of the lord this is my theory about it god in his great love and mercy uh withholds the just desert of my deeds. I do stupid things, and the consequences of them should fall squarely on my head. But God, his love and mercy, lets me slide. But there comes a point where God says, you know, letting him slide isn't helping. 
and God lets us suffer the, the, the consequences of our sin. When Jesus says, go your way and sin no more, lest something worse befall you, Jesus is saying that sin is worse than sickness. Sickness is temporary. Sin can land us in, in eternal punishment in hell. So Jesus, when he says, uh, uh, go your way and sin no more, lest something worse befall you, he's referring to sin. And sometimes sin is its own punishment. Uh, God, in his love and mercy, as long as it is for our good. Now, this is how I look at it. So, again, take it with a grain of salt. God, in his love and mercy, uh, spares us the consequences of our sin as long as it is good for us. So, um He's like, you know, I always talk about the, the, the mother in the kitchen and Junior is three years old and wants to touch the hot stove. And Mommy says, no, 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 it's hot. And the Junior's coming up with his finger. No, 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 it's hot. And third time, Mother looks at Junior and says, you know, it's not that hot. And I got the Band-Aids in the back teen here. Go for it, kid. He touches the stove, howls, and she says, now you'll learn. So, of course, we don't do that anymore because neighbors would call the DCFS. But when I was a kid, <laughs> that sort of thing might happen. You know, that, that uh, if there was not grave danger, uh, mother would let me, uh, you know, told you that was going to happen. So uh, I think God is a wise parent that way. Does that help at all? can be forgiven, but also disciplined by him at the same time. Well, remember the word disciple means a student. It's it's learning. You know, that God wants us to learn the truth. You know, the commandments are, are, are warnings. They're like, like the, the frowny face on the bleach bottle <laughs> that uh, that we put to keep kids from going to the bleach bottle. Do not commit adultery. This is poisonous. Do not steal. This is poisonous. Do not bear false witness. This is poisonous. And and so God wants us to learn these things. So it's a matter, yes, of, of discipline, of learning. And sometimes uh, tough love is a good way to teach people. Uh, but the Lord knows our situation. So I hope that helps a little bit. So, um, uh, you know, understand that God has your good in mind above all things. God, uh, God may allow you to be hurt, but he will never harm you. So there you go. Hope that helps. Whom do we have now, dear voice in my head? Paul from River Forest, Illinois. How you doing, Paul? What can I do for you? Oh. Hi, Father Simon. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 11.1, uh, I believe it says, Cast thy bread upon the water, for thou shalt find it after many days. Can you explain this passage and, you know, what, uh, you know, what impact it has on, uh, on uh, you know, present-day Christians? Yes, I can. At least I can give it the college try. I've often thought that that obscure passage, you know, cast your bread on the waters and it will return to after many days. Well, it'll be soggy. No, I think this is referring to something called Tashlik, which is a Jewish ceremony, uh, meaning uh, Tashlik is a verb meaning to cast off. And it's perform it's a ritual performed on Rosh Hashanah. You will see Orthodox Jews standing at a bridge over a river. It preferably has to be running water. And it is, they, they're throwing bread in it. <laughs> and this is a symbolic casting off of their sins. So, so uh, now some rabbis say, no, 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 that's forbidden in 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 uh, in halakhic law. But uh, because, of course, Rosh Hashanah is a high holiday, and you can't do any work. But mm, don't worry about it. So this is called Tashlik, the ceremony of Tashlik. The penitent recites a biblical passage and uh, certain prayers, and they throw. 
and symbolically throw their sins into this running water to have them washed away. It's a, it's a, in a sense, it's a prefigurance of baptism. And so uh, I, I suspect that that's what's being referred to. Cast your bread upon the waters. Uh, and, um, and after uh, many days, you will find it. In other words, in other words, you're, you're losing this precious bread that you're throwing in the water. Yeah, but it will return to you. In other words, if you get rid of your sins, uh, uh, you'll get more out of it than you think. We think, oh, I don't want to get rid of my sins. I enjoy my sins. What's going to take their place? What am I going to do on a Friday night? Well, something better will come along. That, that I, I, I really, when I hear that cast your bread upon the waters, I always think of the Tashlik ceremony. Does that help? Yes, thank you very much, Father Simon. You're welcome. It's obscure, but hey, obscure. It's what I do. God bless. Thanks for calling in. Whom do we have? I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's what I think about when I hear about casting your bread upon the waters. I think Tashlik. Uh, yes, the voice. I just said, well, that never stopped you before. Well, who have we got now, dear voice, in my head? Steve from Raleigh, North Carolina. What can I do for you, Steve? Hello, Father. Question about uh, in the context of confession and reconciliation. You've taught before yes. that um, the devil wants us to feel forgiven. God wants us to be forgiven. Yep. How does that work on the front end with contrition? Is it possible to be contrite We've... without especially strong feeling of contrition? Oh, yes, it is very possible. Um, in fact, is the best confessions I have ever heard have been rather, rather bland. Father, I did this. I know it was terribly wrong, and I'm really sorry. That's a good confession to me. In other words, oh, Father, I feel so terrible about this. Let me explain. I was in this terrible bind. You know, people will come in. I've always said that God has, will forgive any sin, but in all of history, he's never forgiven an explanation. And so often what we think of as contrition is is about an explanation that, that I really, it's not real unless I feel it. Sometimes God gives you the gift to really feel your your your, your sinfulness. Sometimes he doesn't. But the whole point of it is to genuinely acknowledge. Sometimes for some of us, it takes a great emotion to acknowledge a fact. For uh, some of us, it doesn't. And, um... You know, I've found in my life, when I look squarely at, at something that is evil, it's just evil. And it, it doesn't even, I don't, I just recognize it. This is, this is wrong. The, the, the great moments of repentance in my life have not been terribly emotional, I have to admit. They have been, my God, this is wrong. And uh, this is a horrible thing. Lord, have mercy on me. So, does that help? Tremendously. Thank you. There you go. Yeah, emotions are wonderful. Don't forget, I'm an old Pentecostal. I love a good religious emotion, but that's just the that's just the the frosting on the cake, which I do enjoy frosting. Speaking of frosting, who do we have next? Dear voice in my head, <laughs> Damon from California with a comment. What what can I do for you, Damon? What's your comment? Hey, uh, Father, uh, David in the ark and the soldier falling down dead. Um, uh, the gesture. That's in David's heart. Um, he, I agree, it's for politics and power. And soldiers don't do anything without um, uh, command given, uh, approval, affirmant. And the soldier might have been looking, all gestures might have been not written in the Bible, 
might have been looking at King David. There's fumbling, and King David gives a nod, and he, King, David knows what's in his heart. And when he sees the soldier die, um, it, it shocks him. It awakens something in his heart. Um, just like Peter in Christ says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter, maybe everyone was hopping off the boat. We're going home, Christ. But uh, Peter's mumbling, ah, uh, Christ might have given a gesture. And Peter says, at the sound of your voice, okay, fine, let's go out and we'll go into the deep, but don't expect to catch fish. Uh, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate uh, in the gestures are, uh, of the sacred heart of our Bible in itself. Well, thank you for the comment. I, yeah, it's an interesting take on this. And uh, I think you're right that this guy was definitely David's man. And God was saying, this isn't your job, David. So, well, thanks for calling in and thanks for listening. I think we have one more call on the line. Whom do we have, dear voice in my head? Michael from Rocky Hill. What can I do for you, Michael? Uh, Father Rocky, I really appreciate you. Uh, called in before we chatted. I got a particular insight. I think it was inspiration, but I think anybody can validate it would be you. Uh, when God um, did the, uh, uh, what would he call it, the Annunciation there with Mary, I believe he was there, you know, in the spirit. And I also was wondering that star in the east, that the nativity scene that keeps showing up brighter and moving around, I was really wondering in the glory of God, when he makes himself known in a visual light, it doesn't have to be hot burning, but it can be definitely intense, yeah. whiter than you everything. Know, like the, I'd if, say if uh, Mother Cabrini, Mother Cabrini the... had an experience like that, you know. Mother Cabrini, I remember hearing the story, she was uh, sleeping in a dorm, and there was a novice who woke up and looked, and there's this bright light hovering over Mother Cabrini, and... Uh, and uh, she's telling the nuns about it. That was the last time the Mother Cabrini ever slept in the same room with anyone else. Uh, um, yeah, God, God is light, and and you know, who knows what that star was? Uh, there's all sorts of different interpretations of it, but but this idea that God is light, and I th I think that's very important that we say that in the creed: light from light, God, true God from true God. So I I I I, I think that's true, but I have to correct you in one thing: I'm not Father Rocky. I'm Father Simon. Father Rocky would have a more precise answer, I suspect. But um, yeah, this this idea of light and and uh, living in the light uh, again. Um, nothing that Jesus says that nothing is. I wanted to mention a. Uh, uh, oh, I have to talk about that tomorrow, but thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We read in the Alleluia verse today. I don't want a lamp for my feet. That's like those little lights on the on the vacuum cleaner that you get to see a foot ahead. I want a nice, bright miner's helmet that shines down the trail, and I can see way into the cave. But God gives us a light in his word for our feet, one step at a time. So the light of God is very clear. You just have to stay close to it. And speaking of staying close to the light of God, well, that's pretty much what Drew's trying to do. Mm -hmm.